Welcome to another episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. The show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and today we are continuing our third season, which we call murdered in their beds. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we recommend going back to episode 36 and start the new season from there. It's the first part in this series and marks the beginning of the transient butcher's reign of terror in the Midwest of the early 1900s. Each episode will not only explore the killer's horrific crimes, but will explore the effect that he had on the small railroad towns of the region, especially the town of Villisca, Iowa. Pull the curtains tight, hide the axe in the barn, and get ready for the next part of Murder to Their Beds. of June 11, 1912, the bloodhounds arrived in Villisca. Investigators who were still at the scene discovered a heel print on a magazine that had been tossed on the floor of a closet and immediately suspected, for no other reason, that the killer might have hid there. The dogs were brought into the house and allowed to sniff around in the closet as a starting place. There were dozens of people on hand at daybreak as they watched them take off on a trail that led them toward the Nottoway River. County Attorney Ratliff and Sheriff Jackson organized search parties made up of National Guardsmen and volunteers to scour both sides of the river, but they turned up no clues. Among the bystanders that morning was Frank Jones. Rumors spread that he told someone standing next to him that the dogs were, quote, going in the wrong direction. Well, he later swore he said nothing of the sort, but by then, it was too late. The comment had become a small piece of a much larger conspiracy involving the businessman and politician. On Tuesday, more people arrived in Villisca. It was likely that every train that pulled into the station brought at least a few people who had come because of the murders. Some of them were detectives, or would-be detectives, while others were reporters, freelance writers, or curiosity seekers who'd heard about the murders and wanted to see where they had happened for themselves. They questioned the locals, they walked the streets, milled about in the town square, and stood outside the Moore House, hoping for answers that, well, no one had. The most scandalous rumor to travel around town on that Tuesday was that partially burned papers in the Moore's kitchen stove linked a, quote, prominent local merchant to the murders. No one knew what the papers were, but of course this didn't stop anyone from talking about them and speculating. The truth was there were no papers. Nothing of the sort was found in the house. The authorities told the press then and later that no partially burned papers or any other kind of documents that could shed light on the killer's identity were discovered in the house. But we all know what happens when a rumor gets started. It's hard to stop. And sometimes denying it makes it even worse. The alleged papers might have been forgotten if the newspaper in nearby Red Oak had not used the story as an example of the kind of nonsense that yellow journalists who had flocked to Villisca and filled their articles with gossip and speculation had been making up about the murders. The news article did not mention the name of the prominent local merchant and stated that the story was untrue, but by mentioning it at all, it presented the rumor to hundreds of people who had not heard it already. People started talking about it all over again, and even though the name of the merchant was never mentioned, locals were convinced the story referred to, of course, Frank Jones. Not everyone who arrived in town after the murders was a would-be detective or a reporter. One of them was a criminologist named M.W. McLowry. McLowry was a special agent in charge of the Department of Justice Bureau of Criminal Investigation for the U.S. Federal Prison in Leavenworth, Kansas. He was a fingerprint expert and a member of a family that was distinguished in law enforcement circles. His father was Major R.W. McLowry, the warden at Leavenworth, and his uncle was C.C. McLowry, the warden of the Iowa State Reformatory in Anamosa. McLowry was a well-educated man with experience in the emerging science of criminal investigation, although his examination would never really amount to much. He later wrote a detailed crime scene report about the Moore House, which included detailed measurements and observations. He claimed to have gone over the entire house with a magnifying glass, but this wasn't immediately after he arrived. According to Constable Hank Horton and Dr. Lindquist, when McLowry stepped off the train in Villisca, he was so drunk he could hardly walk. 
Apparently, it had been a long train ride. He was taken to the Moore house anyway, but he was so inebriated that Dr. Lindquist ordered him to leave the house and go to his hotel room so that he could sleep it off. He returned the next morning and spent the next two days attempting to find fingerprints in the house. He examined lamp globes, mirrors, panes of glass, the bloody wash basin, the axe, anything that might have been touched by the killer, but ended with the conclusion that there were, quote, no finger marks of any kind of judicial value. But one thing that we can't say in McLowry's favor is that of all the investigators at the time, his theory of the crime came closest to the truth. He recognized the fact that the killer was not local. He was what the newspapers would soon call a transient butcher. He later named his own suspect in the case, but it would prove to be wrong, as we'll see in a later episode. Another important figure in the case, a suspect rather than an investigator, also arrived, or rather returned, to Villisca after the murders. His name was Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly, who was previously mentioned as an attendee at the Presbyterian Church on the night of the Children's Day program. Kelly was undoubtedly one of the strangest suspects that we'll discuss in regards to the Villisca murders. People who met him seldom forgot him. He was a twitchy little red-haired man who stood only five feet two inches tall. He had a reputation as a peeping Tom and was variously described as eccentric, peculiar, somewhat insane, perverted, and unquestionably out of his mind. Sounds like just the man you'd like to have preaching at your church, right? Kelly had been born in England in 1878 and at the age of 26 came to America with his wife, Laura. He was a religious zealot who, after many failed attempts, eventually managed to become a Presbyterian minister. He was odd-looking, with protruding ears, a large nose, high forehead, and a wide mouth with rubbery lips. People always seemed to remember his piercing blue, deep-set eyes, which many described as crazed but they were more disturbed by the way he acted rather than how he looked. He was easily excited and often ranted and spoke so fast that he was impossible to understand. He was also said to drool excessively and spray spit all over those who were unwise enough to stand close to him when he talked. Kelly was moved from place to place by the church, unable to find anywhere where he really fit in. He was said to be an enthusiastic preacher, but his bizarre personal behavior and his habit of borrowing money and failing to repay it was not what most congregations expected from their pastor. In 1912, the Kellys settled in Macedonia, about 40 miles west of Aliska, after several years of preaching throughout the Midwest. He continued to work as an itinerant preacher, and on June 8th, while Laura remained at home, Kelly took the train to Villisca. He attended the Children's Day program the following evening and was on the 519 a.m. westbound train out of Villisca the following morning. But Kelly returned to Villisca a few days later. He was simply unable to stay away. At home in Macedonia, he had talked incessantly about the crime to anyone who would listen and was anxious to get back to Villisca so he could share his views with the authorities. After he returned to town, he visited the Moore House with Reverend Ewing and told investigators about a strange man he claimed to have seen at the train depot on Monday morning. Kelly said he arrived at the station early and encountered a shabbily dressed man who he assumed was waiting for the same train. He said that the man acted nervous, paced the floor, and seemed anxious to get out of town. Kelly said he assumed the man had gotten onto the train, but he never saw him again. Well, this was exciting stuff. Was Kelly the only witness to see the killer? It seemed that way at first. The more Kelly told the story, the more he embellished it. He soon began claiming he'd seen the man sitting in the back row of the church during the Children's Day program, too. Investigators checked into the story, but no one who had been at the church recalled seeing anyone who fit the description that Kelly gave of the stranger. Passengers on the early morning train that day recalled seeing Kelly, but not the man he described. Reverend Kelly was dismissed as a crank, but that would later change. In fact, he'd eventually be put on trial for the murders, but that's a story for a later episode. The authorities weren't just looking for Reverend Kelly's mysterious stranger. Drifters all over southwestern Iowa were being carefully checked out. Sheriff Jackson received countless reports about suspicious characters in and around Villisca. One reported a black man who was seen south of town. An area farmer had seen a man walking through his fields, and another believed he had someone had slept in his barn. Investigators were also searching for a lace curtain salesman who had been in town for a couple of days and who had checked out of the Fisher Hotel shortly before the murders were discovered. He had called on Sarah Moore as well as many others in town. 
The man has registered as M.J. Rory or Corey. Nobody knows for sure the handwriting was so poor. And he was from Chicago. He was eventually found, and not surprisingly, there was nothing to connect him to the murders other than that he was, according to the newspapers, quote, a mysterious foreigner. But in Villisca, Iowa, in June 1912, that was enough to make someone a suspect in the most horrific crime in the history of a town that was now paralyzed with fear. The sun was shining over Villisca on Wednesday, June 12th, but it was a day filled with sorrow as the funerals of the Moore family and the Stillinger sisters were held in the square. The caskets containing the bodies were arranged in a semicircle inside the town hall. Their lids were closed and even family members had not been allowed to view the devastated remains of their loved ones. Floral arrangements had poured in from relatives, from neighbors, and from friends of both families. There were also flowers from John Deere, local businesses, the Presbyterian Church, the Board of Education, school teachers, customers of JB's store, classmates of the children, and literally scores of others. The arrangements filled the hall and overflowed out onto the sidewalks. Armed soldiers were posted both inside and outside, keeping everyone out of the hall. Captain Casey also posted guardsmen in the park at the center of the square and along the procession route to the cemetery. More than 7,000 people crowded into the park that day. In addition to the mourners, there were journalists from newspapers and magazines across the country. There were also hundreds of the morbid curious, some of them local, but most having traveled great distances to be part of what was now being called the most heinous mass murder in Midwestern history. The crowd was also sprinkled with detectives, all curious to see if the killer would return to the scene of the crime. Of course, none of them would have known he was there if he did show up for the funerals, since they had no idea what he looked like. A platform had been built in the park and Reverend Ewing presided over the service with several ministers from other area churches on hand to offer thoughts and prayers. Although most of the crowd was unable to hear what he said, Reverend Ewing spoke about the Moors, their lives and the affection that he felt for the family. The surviving Moores, Stillingers, and Montgomery's Sarah's family were seated directly in front of the platform and wept as he spoke, especially when he talked about the six children who had died. Sarah's father, John, had gone to the temporary morgue the day before, insisting on seeing his daughter and grandchildren, but he was turned away. JB's father, Charles, seated in a wheelchair with his wife and surviving children, was very sick, and he died a few months after the funerals. It was said that he was not fully aware of what had happened to JB, and no one in the family wanted to tell him. After prayers and hymns, the service in the park came to an end. The caskets were carried from the town hall by pallbearers, all of whom were current or former farm implement dealers with whom JB Moore had worked. Among them was Albert Jones. The funeral procession was the longest ever seen in Villisca, before or since. Two horse-drawn hearses were used, as well as six new farm wagons that had been draped in black. They were followed by an estimated 50 carriages and by hundreds of people who walked, making a procession that was nearly one quarter mile long. The hearses arrived at the cemetery on the north side of town at about the same time the last of the procession was leaving the downtown square. After a long delay, while everyone assembled, Reverend Ewing spoke again at the gravesides. When it was over, the dead were laid to rest. But whether or not they have remains open for debate. While the funeral was taking place, there was work being done at the Moore House. Hank Horton hired Sylvester Cooney and a day laborer named Carl Peterson to clean up the house while everyone was busy with the services. Hank unlocked the house and took them inside to show them what needed to be done. Peterson took one look at the gore-spattered rooms and wanted no part of the job. Feeling sick, he went outside to wait by the wagon. Cooney had a stronger stomach. He folded up the blood-soaked downstairs mattress and bed covers, wrapped the bundle with wire, and carried it outside to the wagon. He did the same with the mattresses upstairs, but being unable to navigate around the turn in the stairs, he heaved the bedding out the triple window, leaving a bloody stain on the siding of the house that he later had to cover up with white paint. After loading the mattresses and bedding in the wagon, Cooney drove to the city dump. He placed a sheet on the ground and shook all the bed covers over it. He later said that several pieces of bone and flesh fell onto the sheet. 
One bone fragment, a square piece that was about three inches in diameter, came from the bed where JB and Sarah's bodies had been found. Cooney then started a fire and burned it all. Bloody sheets, mattresses, and pieces of skull alike. The crime scene had been utterly destroyed. Nothing was done to preserve it. No useful fingerprints had been collected and all the physical evidence was destroyed. The murders in Villisca could never be scientifically connected to any other crime or traced to any killer. More than a century later, as we know, they're still unsolved. Darkness fell on the railroad town of Ellsworth, Kansas on the night of October 15, 1911. A Union Pacific train roared through the crossing just steps away from the house where the town's marshal, Morris Merritt, lived. The supper hour had long since passed and Merritt was sitting in his front room reading the newspaper. As he sipped from a steaming mug of tea, the pages on the paper rustled in his hand, breaking the stillness of the otherwise silent house. Merritt sighed and leaned back in his chair to place the tea mug back onto the small table next to him. It had been a long day, and he was tired. Soon he would turn out the lamp and go to bed. He turned his attention back to the newspaper, and that's when he heard the strange sound, a peculiar scratching sound that was coming from the back of the house. It sounded as if an animal was clawing and scraping at the back door. Merritt looked up from the paper, gazing toward the back of the small cottage. A moment later, the sound stopped. It must have been an animal, he thought, and went back to the newspaper. And then the sound started again. This time, the marshal decided to investigate. He picked up the lamp off the table and went to the back room. When he entered, though, the noise stopped. He waited, but whatever it was, it was gone. It must have been an animal after all, he thought, and when it heard me, it got frightened away. Soon after this, Merritt put out the lamp and went to bed. When he got up the next morning, he dimly recalled the odd incident from the previous night and went around to the back of the house to look things over. He was surprised by what he found. The screen had been removed from the back window and an attempt had been made to pry open the window itself. Someone had tried to break into his house. Perhaps when they heard him inside, they'd run off. The marshal was happy he decided to stay up and read the newspaper. Who knows what might have happened if he'd been asleep. Later that afternoon, Merritt would find out just how lucky he'd been. On Monday, October 16th, Lori Snook got up in the morning and took care of her usual chores. She made breakfast for herself and her child and went quietly about her daily routine. Lori's husband worked nights and slept during the daytime, so she took special care not to bother him with noise from the kitchen and the front room. She took care of some of the washing and then went outside to hang the clothes on the line. While she was pinning up the wash, she looked up and saw a bird dog lurking at the edge of her yard. She recognized the animal right away. It belonged to her friends, the Showmans, who lived two blocks away. Will Showman, his wife Pauline, and their three children, Lester, Fern, and Fenton, were friends of the Snooks and often came over in the evening to keep Lori company while her husband was working. In fact, they'd called on her just the night before and had gone home around 9 p.m. Lori had no idea why their dog had wandered down to her house, but she shooed the animal out of her yard and told him to go home. The dog trotted off toward the showman's and Lori thought no more about it until dinner time when she saw the dog in her yard again. Lori once more chased the dog off toward home and then went back in the house to make dinner for her husband, who would be getting out of bed soon. She still needed to pack his supper pail so he could take it with him to work that night. Before she did, she telephoned the showman's to let them know about the dog, but there was no answer. The afternoon was fading by the time Lori went back outside to bring in the washing. Mr. Snook had just left for work, and she was prepared for another lonely night at home. She took the clothing off the line, folded it into her basket, and was prepared to go inside when she noted the showman's dog was lying down in her yard again. Lori picked up the telephone to call the showman's once more, but there was still no answer. Well, that seemed odd, she thought, so she called Will's place of work, but his boss told her he hadn't shown up for work that day. Worried that her friends might be ill, Lori decided to walk over to their house. The dog jumped to his feet when she came outside carrying the baby, and when he realized that Lori was following him, he sprinted ahead to the showman house. It didn't take long for her to walk the two blocks to the house. 
Will Showman had purchased the little cottage in a tax sale four years before. It sat perched on a small hill overlooking the railroad tracks. Will had done some work on the place, most of it after the addition of his two youngest children. The growing family had forced Will to add an additional angled roof room on the back of the house, which was now used as a kitchen. The family slept in the front of the house with their beds on opposite sides of the room. Will's father, David, was a veteran of the Civil War and had moved his family to Ellsworth in the 1870s. He'd been a mail carrier until his death in 1898. Will's wife, Pauline, was the youngest daughter of John Cradkey, an immigrant who had moved to Ellsworth to join the many fellow bohemian farmers who lived nearby. Will and Pauline had married in 1904, and Will found work as a chauffeur. Unfortunately, it was a job that didn't pay well in a rural town like Ellsworth, so the family never had much money. They were, however, well-liked in town, regularly attended church, and Will was a member in good standing of the local Redmond Lodge, a fraternal organization. When Lori Snook walked up to the showman house, she carried her baby around to the back door. She saw that the door and the outer screen were both hanging open. The showman's dog was anxiously crouched just inside the door. He began to whine as she approached him. Lori leaned into the darkened house and called out for Pauline and Will. There was no reply. She cautiously stepped inside. The house was silent. She called out again as she passed through the kitchen and into the front room. The room was dark, but there was still enough light to see the horror that awaited her. The walls, floor, and ceiling were covered with blood. The battered and bloody bodies of the showman family were flung upon the beds. Two of the children had been killed sitting up and their bodies lay tangled on one of the beds. A stained sheet had been pulled over them. Will had been slaughtered in his sleep, his head bashed in and a sheet pulled over him, leaving only the top of his head and a tangle of blood-soaked hair visible. Fenton, the youngest child, was next to his father on the bed. Like the rest of the family, his skull had been crushed. Only Pauline's body was clearly visible on the bed. Her head had been crushed, her body mutilated, and then posed in a manner like nothing Lori had ever seen before. She clutched her baby to her breast and ran screaming from the house. Terrified, she rushed home and called John Showman, Will's brother. Crying, she managed to choke out what she'd seen in the house. It was John who summoned the police to the scene. The sheriff and his deputies, like other inexperienced law enforcement officers in small towns of the era, were completely overwhelmed with the crime scene that confronted them. They deduced that it had happened at some point during the night. Marshal Merritt reported the strange sounds at his back door as well as the removal of the window screen, and it was surmised that the murders took place soon after. Merritt's house was only two houses away from the showman home. The murders had been carried out with the flat side of an axe, an axe that belonged to the showman's next-door neighbor, Bill Miller. It had been embedded in a stump in Miller's front yard, but now it was found leaning against the wall between the front room and the kitchen. It had been washed with water, but was stained with blood. Strands of hair still clinging to the flat edge of the axe matched those of Pauline Showman. Investigators tried to piece together the scene. They believed that Will had been killed first. Two-year-old Fenton had been sleeping next to his father and was killed next, which had evidently roused Pauline from her sleep. She attempted to fight off the attack, but was also killed, waking the other children. As they tried to get out of bed, their killer attacked them, killing them both with the axe. After the family was dead, the killer completed his grim task by the light of an oil lamp from which the chimney had been removed. The chimney was later found under a chair in the kitchen. In the dim light, the murderer used a bucket of water to wash off his hands and clean the axe. The bucket was still sitting there, partially filled with bloody water. He pulled the curtains tightly closed and took a dress that belonged to Pauline and for some reason draped it over the telephone in the kitchen. It's possible that he hoped to muffle the sound of the ringing in case anyone called the check on the showman's. If the neighbors couldn't hear the telephone, no one would question why they were not answering it. After Sheriff Rufus W. Bradshaw and Marshal Merritt had done everything they could at the scene, the bodies were removed to the Hutchinson Undertaking Parlor. The investigators were at a loss. They were used to dealing with drunks, noise complaints, and perhaps an occasional burglary or theft. The mass murder of an entire family was beyond their capabilities and unlike anything they had dealt with before, but they weren't going to give up easily. Sheriff Bradshaw wired to Abilene for bloodhounds, which arrived on the 11.57 p.m. train on Monday night. Sheriff Young of Dickinson County accompanied the dogs, and they were taken to the scene of the crime. The dogs were given a scent from a cloth on which the murderer had dried his hands, took the trail, and followed it to where the Union Pacific and Frisco Railroad lines crossed, about a half mile west of town. The crossing was only a short distance from the showman home. 
At that point, the dog stopped and began barking and walking in circles. The trail had come to an end. The killer, they realized, had walked to the crossing and boarded a train. They had no idea where he had gone from there. But they kept looking. It was learned that a stranger had asked for a room at the Baker Hotel on Monday morning between 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. He had registered under the name John Smith, suspicious even in 1911, and said that he was on his way to work the mines in Canopolis. When officers searched his room, they found he'd left some clothing behind, including a bloody shirt. They followed his trail to Canopolis, where he ate breakfast in a local restaurant and then applied for work at the Royal Mine. In the register at the hotel, the man said he was from Junction City. So Sheriff Bradshaw wired the authorities there for a description of John Smith, who turned out to be named John Smitherton. He was six feet tall, weighed about 170 pounds, with light hair and light blue eyes. It took nearly a week to find him, but on October 20th, Smitherton was arrested and brought back to Ellsworth. He was so drunk when he arrived that he was unable to answer questions. He was locked up to sleep it off so that he would be able to account for his movements at the time of the murders. By Monday, he'd sobered up enough to talk. According to his story, he had arrived in town from Junction City during the early morning hours of October 16th, around the time the murders took place. When he got off the train, he was drunk, uh, apparently an ongoing condition for him, and he picked up a bundle of clothing that did not belong to him. He carried the clothing to the Baker Hotel. During the night, he had a serious nosebleed and took a shirt from the bundle of clothes to stop the bleeding. The following morning, he walked to Canopolis, leaving the clothes behind at the hotel. He applied for work at the mine and was promised a job after which he left, saying that he would be back. Smitherton then returned to Junction City and brought his wife and five children to Canopolis, intending to go to work at the mine. When he arrived in town, though, he was recognized and arrested soon after. Smitherton's story was corroborated in every detail by his wife. She stated that her husband often got nosebleeds when he drank too much. She had no idea why her husband had been arrested, so she couldn't lie for him as to where he was and what he was doing. Smitherton didn't even know why he'd been arrested. He thought it was because of the clothes he'd taken from the train. He was shocked and surprised when he was told the real reason. After serious questioning by the authorities, assisted by private detectives, his story never changed. He was released on Monday afternoon. The search for Smitherton may have sent the Ellsworth authorities on a wild goose chase, but he was not the only suspect they had for the murders. In fact, Smitherton was not even the most serious suspect. That was a man named Charles Marchek, the brother-in-law of Pauline Showman. Marchek was a con artist who had been sent to the state penitentiary in January 1906 for the theft of some wheat. At the time, he'd been married to Minnie Kratke, Pauline's sister. She obtained a divorce while Marchek was serving a sentence and married an Ellsworth man named James Wopat. Marchek was released from prison in 1910 and immediately went back to a life of crime. In Denver, he carried out a series of check forgeries that netted him several hundred dollars from saloon keepers and grocers, but fled the city before he could be arrested. He was arrested again in St. Joseph, Missouri for forgery and fought extradition to Colorado for his earlier crimes, getting released on a technicality. After that, he allegedly went to San Francisco, where he was said to be living at the time of the murders. So if no one had seen Marchek in Ellsworth, how did he become a suspect? Well, according to rumor, Marchek blamed Minnie's family for his earlier arrest and subsequent prison sentence, and he had vowed revenge. Marshal Merritt was convinced that Marchek was out to get him as well. He'd been the main witness against him at the theft trial, and Merritt believed that he would have been the killer's first target on the night of the murders, but that he'd frightened him off. He was sure it had been Marchek who tried to break into his house that night. But was it? Nope. A nationwide manhunt was started for Charles Marchek, and in the newspapers, this was the first time that the press linked the showman murders with the earlier crimes in Colorado Springs and Monmouth, Illinois. Inventive members of the press, always eager for a lurid story, gave the killer a nickname. They called him Billy the Axeman. They had the right idea, but they had the wrong man. Marchek's connection to all the murders was later discredited, which is likely why the idea of a single transient killer in all of the cases was ignored for so many years. The authorities in Colorado Springs were especially keen to pin all the murders, along with a few more, on Marchek. They came right out and accused him of the crime and guessed, based on their timeline for the other murders, that he would kill again by the end of October. According to their theory, Billy the Axeman had murdered a family of three in Portland, Oregon, eight people in Rainier, Washington, the Waynes and Burnhams in Colorado Springs, the Dawsons in Monmouth, and the Showman family in Ellsworth, 35 people in eight weeks. 
In a grim article in the Colorado Springs Gazette, a reporter wrote, quote, Two weeks separated each of these five murders, the worst known in America. The fiend's next crime is due for execution October 29th. No one knows where, but those who have studied the five murders feel that within the next two weeks, the murderer will add another to his long record. Traveling around the country like a millionaire or a tramp, no one knows which, striking where he is least expected, no one knows when, this Billy the Axeman has terrorized the entire country. Sooner or later, the authorities say that he must leave some clue that will lead to his detection, but until that time, no one knows how many people will be butchered with an axe. Yikes. As mentioned, they got some of it right, but not the most important part. Some of the murders cited by the Colorado Springs police were eventually solved, but the fact remains that one person did commit many of these killings. It just wasn't Charles Marchek. The investigators and reporters who had been promoting the small-time crook as a fiendish killer looked rather silly when he was eventually captured in Manitoba, Canada in April 1912. He had a solid alibi for the time of the Showman murders. He was living in Colorado at the time and had not even been in the country when the other attacks took place. Regardless, he was brought back to Ellsworth and put on trial for the murders. The trial was a farce. A dozen witnesses spoke against him, but none could actually place him in Ellsworth at the time of the murders they just didn't like him. The police even planted a cigar cutter in the showman house, claiming that Marchek had left it behind during the murders, but the jury didn't buy it. Marchek was cleared of any involvement in the crime. The newspapers still couldn't let it go, though. They were sure that he'd gotten away with something. According to reports, Marchek had always been a, quote, clever man, and, quote, many speculated that he had been cleverest in his career to come out of the trial with an acquittal. A private investigation report from 1917 implied that no other arrests were made in the Showman case because the majority of the investigators believed that Marchek had actually committed the crime. But what really happened was that the authorities were tracking down Marchek while the real killer was getting away with murder. The murders of the Showman family were never solved. Once again, the killer carried out his bloody crimes, hopped a passing train, and moved on to the next town before anyone even knew a murder had taken place. Nothing new had been learned about the transient butcher after the Ellsworth murders, but at least now he had a name. Billy the Axeman. If you have the nerve to return for our next episode, we'll be back in Villisca as residents begin to live through what became known as the Summer of Fear. We'll also explore what happened a few months after the murders in Villisca that caused many to believe that the unknown killer had struck again. Make sure the doors are locked before you go to bed tonight. And if you hear any strange sounds outside, be sure to check all the window latches. You don't want to end up like the showmans. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like, where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words come from?
right. Okay. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings Podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You've caught up with us in Season 3, which we call Murdered in Their Beds, the true story of the Midwest axe murders of the 1900s. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. And glad to be here, as always. Yes. So. Well, look, you're starting off on a positive note sure. already. Yeah, of course. That's awesome. Uh, how's it going, man? We haven't caught up in a while. No, it has been it has been a few weeks, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize how much time had passed. Good, good. Things are busy. Yeah. You know, very hectic. That's so, good. I mean, you're always busy. It's not a bad thing. Yeah, I know. But, yeah. You know. So do we want to talk a little bit about uh, where we are recording today? Because that's uh, very, <laughs> could. very it's different. turned out to be very unusual, as it turned out. We were actually going to be recording today anyway. Uh, but those of you who are from the Midwest area know that the Mississippi River is sometimes uncooperative mm-hmm. with things that you want to do. And we plan to be in Alton tonight for a Ghosts of the River Road tour, which... Um, it's hard to have a river road tour when you can't use the river road because yes. it's underwater. So since it wasn't a submarine tour, uh, we thought perhaps that we would postpone uh, for a month. So now it's May the 4th. So we had to move our our date to another time. To the so, Star Wars day. Yes, it is. It is. So yeah. we came down and uh, we're recording anyway. Um, but since we didn't have our usual recording spot, we decided that we would record inside our vault at the uh, Mineral Springs Hotel, which is, you know, our American Hauntings vault. We have a, this is our little Alton book nook. I wouldn't say a bookstore, but it's a book nook in the uh, Mineral Springs Mall. And this is the original safe from the hotel, and it's a lot bigger than it sounds. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. I have to say, well, it looks it's still lot, not very big. It looks but, bigger from the outside <laughs> yes. now that I'm trapped inside. Yes, we're in here with all the doors shut, and hopefully no one locks us in. But um, anyway, it's it's a little close, but uh, hopefully it'll sound okay. That's I think that's the main thing. That is the main so. thing. Well, we have a lot of T-shirts around us and books. I'm hoping yes. that kind of will deafen the sound a little bit. Uh, funny story. So one Saturday, I was working the vault, you know, yes. selling T-shirts and, and yes. books and everything. And Donna, uh, Dave and Donna from It's Raining Zen, she walks by and literally right where I'm sitting right now, I was I was outside, but she looks into the place where I'm sitting and she goes, oh, there's a spirit in there. And she told me about a guy <laughs> and where it was. And I was like, Donna, I'm going to need you to do me a favor. Keep that shit to, <laughs> to yourself. yourself. Uh, so I'm At least si- it wasn't a little kid. Uh, yeah, right? I guess. A ghost kid. But I mean, I'm sitting right where <laughs> she saw something. So thank you for that. Donna. Yeah, it starts to feel really cold. Let me know. Well, yeah, I mean, so. it does right now, but that's, I can't, it's probably just nerves. I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so I just got back from Las Vegas. Yeah. I was yeah. out there for CinemaCon uh, with Cinema Blend, which I know it's a lot of cinema stuff. Um, <laughs> that city, I've been there once before, but I think the desert should take it back. Yeah, I know. And right? it's a, it is a garbage town. I'm yeah. sorry. It's, it's <laughs> unique. There's no other place like it from that's what true. I understand, but boy, was it. Oh, trip, man. I just, I don't even, I don't know. But I got to see, the reason I brought it up, I got to see a lot of um, cool, I got to see a couple movies and I got to see a lot of like sneak peek footage for yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, we saw some of the new Aladdin, some of the new Lion King. The new Lion King looks the best CGI I've ever seen in my wow, life. Cool. It's, and it should. Um, some Toy Story 4. We also saw some scary stuff and saw uh, John Wick 3, like the little oh, clip sure, of it. Oh, sure, sure. It is so violent and so yeah, amazing. Well, I'm, I, I'm ready. I can't wait. Yeah, me too. Um, so yeah, ready for some scary movies and um, really, really excited for uh, for Pet Cemetery. I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, no, I'm seeing it this weekend. Nice, yeah. nice. Okay, cool. So enough, enough about that. Uh, I wanted to share with you. We get iTunes reviews uh, from time to time, and I kind of want to <laughs> again. Do- again, the guy that <laughs> left us the one star review, and then it's a glowing review. Please fix that. One does not mean good. One is bad. Five is good. I I appreciate the sentiment, but it's just... He really wrote a nice review, but I think he got confused about what the stars meant. Yes. And, you know, that's... I understand that. Keep hoping he's listening at some point and we'll fix that. Fingers crossed, man. But (laughs) so this one is titled Great Podcast. It's from Logan A. Pop. And he said, I've been introduced to this podcast from a friend of mine a couple months ago. I listen and enjoy each episode. I'm on season two at the moment. Just finished listening to episode 18. It's about the cemeteries in St. Louis. In the episode, Troy mentioned about a cemetery with a marker that has a laser grid design of a motorcycle. I'm curious what cemetery Troy's talking about. Me too, because I don't even remember that. Interesting. Um, 
So okay. I don't know if we. I, I don't know. Yeah. So he don't remember. He's at. Yeah. He was asking. Must have what seen it somewhere. Was. Or something. Well, yeah. If, so Logan, if you can get me more details, I'll try to figure that out for you. But uh, right now, I don't, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, either. I tried, Logan. Thank you very much, though, for the review. Really appreciate that. Um, I've also since I've been away for a week, so I've been kind of slacking on the American Haunt, Hauntings podcast uh, Twitter account. So oh, yeah. I'm going to jump back onto that. Um, so I apologize, but thank you for kind of bearing with me. But we have some stuff coming up. You want to talk about that? Sure, sure. Yeah, actually, um, I have a new book coming out on Do April you? the 30th, um, A Song of Dance and Death. People who were at the conference last year will remember I did a presentation on some rock and roll curses and the 27 Club, and uh, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, in fact, I think it was probably one of my favorite presentations I've ever done at a conference in 20 some odd years. Why is that? Just because the subject it was just fun. Or, it was yeah. just a fun presentation to put together. I mean, it was full of horrible things, right. but it was right. a lot of fun. But anyway, um, the book comes out on April 30th. Um, so if you're interested in sex, drugs, magic, the occult and rock and roll, yeah. um, this is probably the book for you. That's what the so, phrase should have been. Yeah. Honestly, right. Instead of just right. yeah, the sex, drugs, rock and roll. I've seen yeah. the cover, too. It looks awesome. Yeah. The cover really turned out cool. So that was an that was an interesting story in itself. But yes, yes the cover, uh, the cover is very cool. It, it's in the style of an old concert poster. So uh, a lot of people have been confused mm-hmm. by that, thinking that it was you have a show coming up. Yeah, thinking I'm getting ready to perform, but they didn't check the date on it. It said 1966. So I think we're a little past that expiration date. But anyway, um, that's coming out on, on April 30th. Um, and we've already talked about this. I know we've talked about the Haunted America Conference. Uh, I won't go into that in great detail, but if you go to Ghost conference.net. You can find out all about the conference. We are now two thirds of the way filled um, and we've still got a couple months to go. So again, if you're planning on commenting, please, you know, get your reservation made or you will not be able to attend because we will fill up again this year. Um, so we've added a few things to the schedule. Yeah. What um, do we got? Yeah. You know, the, uh, the evening with the black Dahlia, July 13th is on the schedule. Uh, August 10th, we've got an evening with the ax man in Alton, um, which is, it's it's like our podcast all in one night with pictures. You yeah, you yeah, came to the you one in January. Spoiled the yeah. whole thing yeah. for everyone, <laughs> yeah. but it's, yeah. it's yeah. great. It does give away the ending. Uh, but anyway, uh, we've got that coming up in August. Um, we also added a Ghost of the River Road tour that we had to switch around. Uh, we do have extra seats for that, but that's May fourth, so that's going to be coming up really close to when this podcast is out. Yeah. So I don't know that we'll still have seats left for that. But if we do, um, hopefully. If you're wanting to attend one of those, we won't have another one until the fall. Yeah. So if you're wanting to come, it, it is a good time. That is one of my favorite tours that we've ever done. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you can so. only fit so many people on a pontoon boat, too, with the river road tours. <laughs> yeah, so with the river. Yeah, uh, with the river underwater, right? So, yeah. Or the road underwater. So where can – okay, so actually you talked about um, Black Dahlia. I'm sitting right next to your Fallen Angel book. Um, yes. Where can people find this book? Where can they find your new book? What is that Um, site? If they just go to AmericanHauntings.net. Got it. Um, that'll that's everything that we do. All the events we have coming up, the tours that we have coming up, because that's one thing I don't even think we talked about. We've got a brand new tour starting in Springfield, Illinois. Yeah. Um, it starts at the end of April as our first tours, and then it runs every weekend through November. Um, it's brand new. Well, it's, I should say brand new because we actually started this tour in 2006. It's a revival. But we took a yeah, it is a revival. We took a hiatus from it, and so we brought it back this year. Uh, I think really better than it ever was. Um, you know, we we be using the Lincoln Park, the state or the national park, Lincoln's home, all that stuff will be part of the tour now. Uh, so it's going to be fun. It's going to be a good time. So we've got the. I think the very first one's already sold out. Nice. And then we uh, will go from there every weekend. So we're looking forward to it. That's awesome. And we did uh, we did the Dave Glover show again the other day. Oh yeah, that's I right. must say. Being on the radio, knowing you're live, it's so much more terrifying to me than mm. doing this kind of thing. Yeah, I don't I don't find it terrifying. What I find is that if I do that show that I just have to talk and not stop. Yes. Because if you pause, they will cut well, you off. Radio is a different beast. They will cut you off and then you will never get another word in. Yeah. So I just talk nonstop while I'm on that Which show. Which you're good at. You're good at doing well, it. I can do it, but it's, yeah, you got to really take your moments right. there. <laughs> yes, but well, thank you for them to, for reaching out and having us back on the show. Uh, are you ready to dive in? Sure, I'm ready. I'm okay, ready. so we're going back to Villisca, Iowa on the morning of June 11th, 1912. 
they bring in the bloodhounds. Of course. Yes, because of course, of course you, you always do. And yeah. very quickly, some rumors spread about uh, our buddy Frank Jones saying, yeah. hey, those, uh, those dogs are going the wrong way. Yeah, I, I don't know how this stuff got started about this poor guy. Um, I, well, I say poor guy. I mean, you know, he was, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a comparison for most people of, mm-hmm. of what he would have been like. And, and I don't know how to compare it. I mean, he was this rich guy in town. You know, he you know owned all these businesses. He owned the bank. You know, he was a politician. And for whatever reason, he just became I I guess it's why we're obsessed with what the wives of the princes in England are doing. Who cares? But, you know, um, there's somebody to talk about because they're wealthy and they're, you know, in a different in a different world, literally in a different world than we are. And so it gives people something to talk about, I guess. Uh, but for whatever reason, he was constantly that that whole summer was a target of people's gossip and speculation. And, it, and it's going to get worse yeah. before it gets better. I mean, as the story goes on, um, in fact, coming up in a couple of episodes, we'll start getting into a detective who came to town with the sole purpose of penning these murders on Frank Jones. I mean, and we don't even know why he chose him. Yeah, he just did, you know. So well, it's great. You know, you have a detective who starts with the end result and works backwards instead yeah, exactly. of you know, getting exactly. the evidence. That's exactly what this guy was doing. And so this is it's interesting to see because you mentioned that there were uh, rumors in papers that didn't yeah. really exist. Right. And, and people convinced that the rumors were about Frank Jones. So it's it's nice to see that this has always been a problem. Yeah. And that yeah. just fake news and people just sure. take a story and telephone it. And by the end of yeah. it, it's just completely. Next thing you know, you've got a child molesting ring in a pizza parlor. Yes. Pizza gate. That doesn't have a basement. Yes, so please yeah. leave. Leave the pizza places mm, out mm-hmm. of this, people. Right, exactly. Oh, it's terrible. So anyway, so there's a criminologist named um, M.W. McLowry. He's a special agent in charge of the Department of Justice. Yeah, it's a long time. Bureau, Bureau of Criminal <laughs> Investigation for the U.S. Federal Prison, prison at, in Leavenworth, Kansas. He's also a fingerprint expert. But he never really was able to turn up anything. Mm, no. And he claimed to have gone over the entire house with a magnifying glass, which... Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I want that level of dedication, but it also just sounds very tedious and yeah. terrible. Well, and, and, you know, he was the forerunner of a CSI team, I guess. I mean, he had the right idea. Mm-hmm. He just didn't really have the equipment to work with. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because of that, and then even if he had gotten fingerprints, he wouldn't have had anything to compare them to unless no this guy had or... been a federal prisoner at Leavenworth. That probably been the only database he yeah. would have had, which would have taken months to go through. It's a very it's a manual process. But at it that was point, right? but it was an idea. He had a he had a good idea. It's just that, you know, it just the time period just didn't allow for it. Yeah. You know, he didn't have the technology that he needed to make that really work. Right. Well, you so know. that kind of makes sense for this next part then, because according to Constable Hank Horton, um, he was completely drunk when <laughs> yeah, he, when, he when, they, when they found him. to town. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, I've been there, but also I could see a very stressed out man, like, you know, trying yeah. his hardest and he's yeah. ahead of his time. And you know, just like, you know what? It's funny. And I, and I commented that it was a long train ride, but it really isn't. Yeah. I, I, was, I, wondering, okay, Le- I was wondering Le- about that. to Villisca is, was really, maybe half a day I yeah. mean in the in that time it wasn't that long of a train trip but he was apparently hammered when yeah. he got there fell off the train you know uh, and they took him to the house and he was so drunk that the coroner said you know just go sleep it off we'll try this I, I like it he comes back he's like alright I'm back I'm much more sober I'm <laughs> right, ready to, to right. do this right I'm ready to crawl through the house with a magnifying glass so he concluded that there were no finger marks of any kind of judicial value and he recognized that the killer was not local and this is when the newspapers started calling him the transient butcher. Well, they soon would. They soon would. It, it okay. would be after our the the case at the end of this episode. Got it. Yeah, after the Ellsworth, Kansas murders, the newspapers started picking up the idea that these murders might actually be related. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I know you clearly said would soon call him transient, but I just I'm just rewriting oh, your words all right, over here. So, <sighs> Reverend Kelly also returns to Valencia. <laughs> yeah, and. I get to I get to give a little bit better of a description and everyone's no one's going to hear this. But when I was reading this, when I was doing the initial part of the podcast, when I'm you know reading the story, uh, I ended up getting the giggles. Oh, yeah. Um, in this when I was recording, I got to something about him spraying spit all over people yes. and for whatever reason it just struck me as funny and so cody has some editing to do you know i'm <laughs> who knows i might pull that to the beginning of the episode <laughs> yeah. for people to hear i just couldn't help it i just started laughing i was reading my description of him 
And uh, I just started laughing and I couldn't stop. Well, because you so. went into so much detail about him that I started typing it all out and then I stopped and I just said, he sounds great, dot, 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 ask oh, Troy to elaborate. God. I mean, yeah, what a freak. He just sounds, yeah, he sounds so weird yeah, and just so creepy. weird, you know. And I mean, all I could think about is, you know, all the, the weird stuff that he did. You know, I mean, the he's a peeping Tom for yes, starters. He right. kept getting caught as a peeping Tom everywhere he lived. And then the I pulled these quotes from articles about him. Eccentric, peculiar, somewhat insane, perverted, <laughs> and unquestionably out of his mind. These were quotes right. that people were using. And I just keep thinking... Why would you give this guy a job as a preacher at your church after you've met him one time? Yeah. If he's that big of a freak, surely people were noticing this to start with. That's that's what baffles me about this whole thing. And, you know, and the Presbyterian Church just kept moving him from place to place, which, you know, I'm glad they sounds changed like those the Catholic kind of ways. Church. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, they don't do anything yeah, like that. Move so, around, move around. Yeah. Oh, man. He claims to have seen a strange man at the train station. Yeah. Do you think this person ever no. existed? No. No, no of no, course no, not. No. Okay, so the funerals for the Moore family and Stillinger girls, they were on June. You know 20th. how I feel about Reverend Kelly. You've oh, heard yeah. the end of this I know, story. That, and that's the yeah. thing. I try to pace myself with right. how we talk about him because right. I have to yeah. have to hold back. So these funerals were on June 12th. More than 7,000 people were crowded into the park that day. Uh, do you... Do you, I don't think this is true, but do you think the killer is at the funeral? I don't no. you think it was one no, that no, came no, back no, and no. did that oh, kind of no, stuff. No, 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 no. Um, just long gone. I mean, I think if it had been someone local. Yeah. Yeah. I think that they, there's a very good chance they would have been there. But in this situation, absolutely not. Yeah. This guy was long gone. He didn't care about that. He didn't care about that aspect of it. Right. It was all done. It was over with. Which is even and, scarier because it's like a lot of times when you think about, oh, they come back to the scene of the crime. They want to kind of almost get caught and stuff. This guy's just no, like, no, not nope, this guy. This, done. I mean, this guy is a psychopath. But he's an organized psychopath. Yeah. He is not this isn't this isn't Reverend Kelly drooling on people and acting like a maniac. I mean, his his moments of mania were in the middle of his crime scenes, which, again, are extremely organized and re rep repetitive, doing the same things yeah. each time. Well, it works. Yeah. And so, no, this guy, this guy has moved on. He has no sympathy for doesn't want to see the family members doesn't care. Yeah, he's gone. You know, he's gone. He did what he wanted to do and he moved on. Um, so, yeah, they, they came back. And I think that's a normal thing. I know that, you know, a lot of times with murderous detectives will attend the funerals and things thinking that they will catch somebody out. But those are because those murders are, are thought to be related to, you know, family members or someone that the killer or the victim knew yeah. rather than just some random stranger. I, serial killers don't return to the scene of the crime like that. And you know, not not for the most part, I don't think, mm -hmm. at least not guys like this guy. So got it. No, that makes sense. So they had someone then clear the Moore house and they burn all the beds, all the sheets, yeah. everything. And he said, they're, yeah, they're while, bone fragments. Isn't that something, though? While they're busy. I mean, I, I get why he did it. Yeah, like, I understand why Hank Horton did it the way he did it, because he didn't want the family to have to suffer again. through this again. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, everybody's busy. So we hurry some guys over to the house to clean up the crime scene. Nobody's going to live there anyway, not mm -hmm. for years. And, you know, and it's just this disastrous mess. And they just absolutely eradicated the entire crime scene. Yeah. A few days after the murders. Yeah. I mean, it's not even like that they could have, you know, they had like Lowry come in and go through the whole place. But, you know. Again, you know, it's easy for us to look back in hindsight and go, oh, yeah, look at this. Boy, these guys had no idea what they were doing. Right, well, of right. course they didn't know what they were doing. Not only were they small town guys, but even the detectives who had experience with this kind of stuff. What were they supposed to do with the crime scene? Yeah. They looked at it already. They didn't know anything from it. So, yeah, you know, I mean, just, I still wish, you know, hey, we move it to the a back room at the police station in case, you know, in yeah. a week or two, we get somebody, you know, with, that's looking yeah. at it through a different lens. Right, or something, right, but right. It, it would have, I think, would have been helpful to hang on to that stuff. At least for a little the, bit. The mattresses, think? the, you know, the bone fragments, the, you know, that, I mean, I think that keeping that stuff would have been a better idea than burning it all. Yes. But, you know, that's unfortunately the mindset. You know, yeah, uh, different, different time. Yeah. So, OK, let's take a little trip over. We're going to leave Villisca now, go to Ellsworth, Kansas, October 15th, 1911. Yes. Morris Merritt, town marshal. Here's a strange sound from the back of his house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, next morning, finds out that the screen had been removed from the back window and an attempt had been made to try and pry open the window. Very, very weird. But he doesn't know the half of well, it. Well, no, yeah, he doesn't. And I'm sure that it was, um, you know, when he saw that the next morning, it was disconcerting. But 
I'm going to say that probably not the first time things like that have happened. Yeah. If they thought the house was empty, it could have, I mean, Somebody this guy was right by the railroad tracks. Yeah. I mean, so you had all these people who were traveling through, you know, a lot of people riding the rails back in those days. And so I'm sure a lot of things turned up missing from people's yards or houses or, you know, things right by the tracks like that. And so probably if they thought the house was empty, people probably tried to break into houses all the time. Yeah. And so I think he was probably bothered by it. He just didn't know how lucky he was that whoever it was didn't get inside. Right. Because if he had been asleep, um, it might have been a multiple. Another multiple house yeah, thing. Like yeah. the one in Colorado Springs. Yeah. So. Well, so the next day on October 16th, uh, one of the neighbors basically realized that there's a a strange dog that she she recognized the dog, right. but it's not supposed to be there. Right. And long story short, she calls the phone of the other like the Lassie. Dog. Yes, you're right. It's like Timmy's down the well. Down in the well, you know, exactly. Um, except she's just not getting it. Yeah, she knew the she knew the dog, and I'm sure the dog had been there with the family because they visited back and forth. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure the dog knew that you know I should go there need to tell because it's a friendly you know somebody friendly I can tell this to or you know acknowledge you know get them to acknowledge something's wrong. Right. But, yeah, Lori Snook wasn't getting the Timmy was down the well. Wasn't getting the message. From Lassie there. But she calls the family uh, of Will Showman, and it's no answer, no answer. And so she calls his work, and they realize it didn't show up that day. So she decides to go investigate. Um, but I wanted to clarify something. When she gets there, it seems like the doors were open this time. Yeah, the back door. Well, the back door was open. The back front door open. wasn't. The back door was open. It, and that was a little odd. Mm-hmm. Uh, the windows were all covered. The bodies were covered. But he didn't lock the door this time. Yeah. Which I thought was strange because, you know, he had taken a dress that belonged to Pauline Showman and had covered the phone with it. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting. Um, I wonder if he was that's learning. Something he, yeah, maybe. I mean, that's something he hadn't done before. Um, but then for what and hung around, washed up just mm-hmm. like he's done at other scenes. But for whatever reason, left the back door unlocked. Yeah, so so they were able to go in, and Lori, she obviously discovers the crime scene, but I was also realizing she's seeing all this while she's holding her baby. Baby, I know. Which is just, it just adds a new Uh level of... Well, and then completely freaks out and runs home and calls Will's brother. Yeah, so she calls John John Showman, uh, who gets the police, and of course the cops in the small town are just completely overwhelmed. They find the axe in the house leaning up against the wall, but they also find some bodies that are positioned a little differently. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that this has happened because he goes out of order and kills the yes. father normally, but then he kills a kid, which kind of fucks everything up because then right. somebody wakes up, people right. are getting up. And so he's got to kill people that are awake and probably right. moving this time, right. which causes a different crime scene, people sitting up in different positions and things. You mentioned that he used a dress to cover up the telephone. I'm wondering, did a phone ring in a different place? And he's like, I don't want to have that happen again. So maybe he's like kind of maybe. learning, Makes sense. You know, re- refining his methods. Um, they bring in the bloodhounds again and they lead to the railroad track. Yeah. This time they actually followed a trail, unlike the closet <laughs> in Villisca. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which there was no reason to believe that that was, you know, the killer had hidden that closet. Yeah. We just thought, well, well, you know, maybe, you know, um, but this time the, the, the bloodhounds, I mean, there's a reason they kept bringing in bloodhounds because sometimes it worked, Yeah. you know, and so they brought in the bloodhounds and they followed the trail down to where the two railroad lines crossed. And um, I think it became obvious to everybody that he had hopped on a train Mm -hmm. and was long gone by the time they, you know, by the next morning he'd been gone for who knows how long and to where nobody knew. Right. So, and so eventually we learned that a strange man had checked into the Baker hotel on Monday morning (laughs) using the name John Smith. Right. And left behind a bloody shirt. So uh, obviously, you know, this is such a cliche name um, to use <laughs> yeah. and then leaving behind a bloody shirt. But it didn't end up panning out. He's, no, he's no, not no. the guy. His name was actually John Smitherton, which I thought was <laughs> oh really interesting, you know. So what are the odds? He's yeah. Just, <sighs> but he turns out to just be a drunk who was passing through town that picked up the wrong clothes on the train and then yeah. got off with them and then, you know, ended up with a nosebleed because he was a raging alcoholic. Yeah. You know, and um, so all of it was easily explainable. You know, as it turned out, right? And but, they went, spent a week chasing this guy. You know, so it's so, yeah. so funny. I mean, it's not funny, but it's, it's I know it's comical. I, know. I mean, it seemed it seemed like a possibility. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's you got to chase crazy, down the lead. It's not a crazy idea that this guy might have been involved. That they don't understand what they're dealing with. Yeah. So it really wasn't that big of a surprise that they followed up on this. It just didn't go anywhere. I'd be so and pissed. It became it just becomes sort of humorous. Yes, you know? it's just it's ridiculous. Freaking Clouseau over there. Yeah. So the but there was a 
serious suspect at the time, wow. uh, a man named Charles Marchek. Uh, right. And there was like even less evidence that he was involved. They just didn't like him. Right. So, so he was the brother-in-law of Pauline Showman. Can you explain to me a little bit about how he landed himself on the suspect list? Well, um, they didn't like him. I mean, that's pretty much what it boils down to. Yeah. Um, he had been married to Pauline's sister, Minnie. And uh, was involved in a whole bunch of shady stuff. And I guess Will Shulman had been the one who had turned him in. And Marshall Merritt, who, you know, had also thought or, you know, had had someone try to break into his window, had been kind of like the, the law, the law officer who had testified against him at trial. So he felt like that that Charles Marchek had a grudge against him and the showmans mm-hmm. uh, because he had gotten out of jail a short, out of prison a, a, not too long before and then had kind of taken off again and had been involved with several more brushes with the law. So because he was, you know, he, you know, he vowed revenge, he had a grudge and they didn't like him. They just decided, well, it must have been him because it's the same thing that's happening in Villisca in our other timeline. You know, we're looking for anyone who might have had a grudge against you know, um, the Moore family rather than, you know, we're looking for a serial killer because that kind of thing just didn't really exist at the time. Well, it did. Just nobody knew it. Um, but interestingly, when some of the out of state lawmen and some of the out of state newspapers got wind of this and this Charles Marchek guy who was obviously a criminal who had been on the run, who had been involved in crimes in all these different states. Well, if he's if he's committed these murders in Kansas and they're just like the ones that happened in Colorado and Illinois, and it must be this. It must be him because he's traveling around everywhere. Right. So um, now they started looking on someone looking for someone who was you know, committing these murders in different places. And that's how the, that phrase came up for a transient butcher. Mm -hmm. It came out of these newspaper articles uh, in the Colorado Springs Gazette. And um, they're the ones who started calling him Billy the Axeman. Right. And I don't know why, because his name name, is Charles, but I I don't know where they, yeah, I don't know where they got that, but they came up with it, but they started trying to pin all kinds of crazy as has been done in more recent times, Mm -hmm. pinning every single ax murder that ever happened on one person, even though these crimes weren't related. A lot of them weren't, but there were some that were right. So so they had the right idea. So let's talk about that. So Colorado Springs authority dubbed Billy, the ax man has murdered a family of three in Portland. Eight people in Washington, the Waynes and Burnhams in Colorado Springs, the Dawsons in Monmouth, the Showman family in Ellsworth, 35 people in eight yeah, weeks. So this is really moving. Yeah. Um, you know, he had killed, you know, he, at least he killed the Waynes and the Burnhams in Colorado Springs and he killed the Dawsons. Mm-hmm. And I still believe he killed the people in San Antonio mm-hmm. uh, the year before that. Uh, but, you know, the people in Oregon and Mount Rainier or in Rainier, mm-hmm. Washington, I guess, um, you know, Did you other, look into those. I'm guessing. Yeah, I have They They were not, they're not the same. I mean, they're not, they don't connect other than they happen during the same time period, but big deal, you know, but there aren't any of the, the same earmarks in any of those crimes mm-hmm. that there are in the, in the other ones. They don't match. Right. And so what actually happened is that while the authorities were tracking down Marchek, the real killer was getting away with murder. Mm-hmm. And that's where we'll pick up next time. Okay, so it's now time for our Ghost Riders segment. If you have a comment or question about the world of the macabre, please feel free to email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. So our first email comes to us from Brent, and it's about the whole Axe, A-X, versus oh, yeah, right. Axe, right. A-X-E thing. And he sent an interesting article from uh, Grammarly.com, which is a little extension that I use yeah. for Chrome. Yeah. Helps me with a lot. It honestly left me with more questions <laughs> than answers. And I basically just realized that English doesn't make sense a lot no, of times. And some people also mentioned that maybe it was uh, when you had to pay by the letter sort of thing. You know, we cut out the the E, like well, kind of like with color. And a too, British but... American thing, you know. Yeah. So I have a link to it. I can put it in the show notes if you want to check it out. But I still... I still don't know. Um, well, they, I don't use it, so I just I don't use it. Right, right. So that's that's my thing, and I don't think either way is wrong. Yeah. So okay, I just probably wanted, I don't know which one's right, but neither one is wrong. I just so always felt I just always way. felt very self conscious about it. I was like, oh, right. I don't know, am I spelling this right? Am I spelling it wrong? <laughs> I, so okay, it's good to know. I'm just gonna use. I'm just gonna probably go ax and just 
stick with yeah, that. So at least I'm yeah. consistent. There you go. Uh, so Susan emailed in and she said, basically she said point blank, does Troy believe in ghosts? And Susan, what I'm going to tell you is that we address this specific question because so many people wrote in and asked about this. So if you want to listen to the limps part six, it's episode 24. We dive deep into our, both of our beliefs about the paranormal. So check out the limps part. Well, we six. also did an entire episode about our own personal experiences too. We did. That was yeah. probably hard to listen to for some people oh, because yeah, maybe so. any, it was a little sloppy, it was a little sloppy, but, yeah. So thanks for writing in. Thanks for your questions. American Hauntings Podcast at gmail.com. We also have some new patrons that I wanted to give shout outs to. So thank you very much for supporting our show, Joe, Patsy, Kelly, and Amy. So thank you again. If you're interested in checking out what we have to offer on Patreon, you can check it out at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. We have tiers that are just $1 all the, all the way up with lots of really fun stuff. So please check that out at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Okay, well, I guess we should wrap this up. And um, move on. We've got another episode coming up and uh, lots more episodes coming up in this story. Again, I'm not really sure when it's going to end, but you know what? There's a lot of things, a lot of fun things to talk about still and still a lot of murders to go. So next uh, next time we'll be getting into uh, a murder that wasn't the Axeman that still really messed up the investigation. So that'll be next time around. So anyway, guys, thanks again for listening. And um, as we mentioned at the very beginning, please uh Share us with your friends and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts at. And we uh, we really appreciate everybody listening in. Um, it's been a lot of fun doing this podcast and you guys make it a lot of fun. So thank you again for all of that. And uh, we'll see you next time. This episode of American Hauntings Podcast was written by Troy Taylor. Are we really doing this? And edited by Are me, you really doing Cody this? Beck. In each God. episode, we try to combine history, like folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. Check out our new episodes on your morning commute every other Tuesday to hear our latest episode and take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes, really, Stitcher, the whole thing? CastBox, Spotify, or your other favorite Ugh. podcast apps by searching for American Hauntings, or you can go to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to Troy's books and information about upcoming tours, events, and haunted happenings. Remember, do this like the 10 second thing. If you love the show, yeah. American Hauntings is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference, all of which you can find at our website at AmericanHauntings.net. And if you're one of the people who wish we had a new show every week, well, you can have that. You have the chance to support the podcast by checking out our Patreon page. As a supporter, you can get bonus episodes of the show, t-shirts, great stuff in the mail, and more. We're extremely excited about producing more shows with better equipment, and with your help, we can dedicate more time and resources to making that happen. Take a minute and check it out. We think you'll like what you find at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. You can also find your host on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you have comments, suggestions, reviews, or jokes, be sure to pass them along. Until next time, goodbye, so long, and see you later.